City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Good morning. Morning. How's it going? Yeah, okay. I'm going to back announce that song. um, And Kev is just thrilled that Pro Vocals has released a new album. Uh, Koori Rapper. That was um, him collaborating with Lady Lash on a track called Dominoes. Yeah, I'm just getting back into my chair after bouncing around the studio madly. I've got one. Um, <laughs> it was Corey Green. I'm Kevin Healy. And we've got Emma, Emma Warner, isn't it your name? Warren. Warren. Oh, I was told Warner yesterday, That's, but yeah. someone, someone obviously couldn't read her own writing, Corey. <laughs> um, Emma Warren's coming onto the program as a new co-presenter as well, and she's um, she's got a background in planning, which we'll talk about later in the program, Emma, yeah. because uh, you're welcome aboard. Thank you. And you've already mm. got yourself a cup of tea. She made her own in the kitchen, um, but we'll pour it Maybe pour another one shortly. We can pour tea this week. That's good news, listener, because last week, of course, we couldn't. Um, and that was a tragedy last week. Mm. And um, Emma, um, we were in the second half, we were going to have a yarn today to um, Kate Shaw, but Kate, um, has, again, c- couldn't make it today. So we're going to talk to her in two weeks' time. Kate's up at Melbourne in the planning department there, and uh, that's the university, not the city. And um, she... Uh, She'll be coming on talking about broader planning issues in two weeks' time. But Emma, we're going to talk about anyway such issues and just a bit of her background to introduce her to people today. The first half, though, very shortly, in fact, because he's got to get away, we're going to go to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth and talk about the Brazil disaster in the context of how these companies treat treat um, sites and the environment all over the world, in fact. So we'll pick up on that issue with, with Cam very shortly. So we're, not going, we're going to limit our own little crap start to the thing. Look, I'd better pour the tea, though, but it's two weeks mm. and our listeners will be... And there'll be a few bladders out there in real trouble unless we pour this. Here we go. There's a pouring of the tea. That's coming to you live from the 3CR live, studio. Live from 3CR, that's it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we're, now we've done that. One I did want to raise, though, because the banks... Following all that stuff last year about them giving financial, you know, false financial advice or financial advice to themselves, etc., uh, will come back to us, and all sorts of scandals. They've now got a PR campaign with government and the public to convince us that the banks, in fact, are um, are an essential and responsible contributor to Australia's prosperity, which we all knew anyway, of course, didn't we? Is that why um, the government had to back up all of their money? In the financial yeah, crisis, exactly. They're too big to fall, and the um, and of course they say the hikes in in rates that they put up, despite the fact that the they haven't gone up with the Reserve Bank, uh, are essential, and they're going to convince um, consumers that that's really good for them. Although in terms of prosperity, it might be much good for the consumers' prosperity, of course. But uh, anyway, that's that one. And one I thought this is the bit I picked it up though for particularly. They say. Because they're now going to concentrate on seeing themselves as essential and responsible contributor to Australia's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're no longer going to advocate some issues such as climate change and economic security for women and an affordable housing scheme for low income and homeless people. Now, I thought at, the banks have always worked towards climate change. Yeah, at what point did they actually, did we ever hear them advocating? 
climate change, economic security for women, affordable housing for low-income and homeless people. I mean, the fact that they've announced they're not going to do it alerted us to the fact that apparently they were doing it. Oh, I knew that. Do you have any idea of that? No. Can I, um, no. Can I, can I put a question to you, Kev? Yeah, but I probably can't answer it. What did you make of the whole um, having a national bank, the Commonwealth Bank, when it was, you know, a part of the Commonwealth? Well, it was at least it was owned by the public and it had some controls over things, didn't it? Uh, it's interesting because, well, we'll divert very slightly. It's interesting because it was sold off on the basis that uh, it's much more efficient in the private, you know, private's the usual line, that it's much more efficient. Mm. What I've always found fascinating was because in the same period, the same government, the Hawke-Keating government, flogged off Qantas as well. Mm. And their argument then was that um, Qantas, there was, they needed to spend big money to upgrade the fleet, etc., to, to compete with the other world airlines. And the public purse couldn't afford that, but it needed the private sector, which was so efficient and could afford it, to take over so it could keep going. Mm-hmm. And now, whenever there's a threat to Qantas, particularly on the Pacific route, its most lucrative route, uh, by airlines like Singapore or Emirates, etc., its argument is... It's unfair because we can't compete with state-owned airlines. <laughs> um, can you explain the difference there to me uh, at all? I'm not smart enough to understand no, okay. Okay. capitalism. Just thought I'd mention that one. <laughs> yep. Look, we will take a break, come back, and we're going to talk very quick, very shortly, not very quickly, but very shortly, to uh, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about Brazil and mining disasters and other encouraging and cheerful little things. And we're going to go to a track. Um, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. The time is 9.07. And this is Infinite Void with their new one, Even Ground. Another song that Kev is just oh, thrilled about. Another dance around the studio. <laughs> you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Infinite Void with their new one, Even Ground. I bet Cam Walker enjoyed that music at the other end of the line. Um, Cam Walker is on the line. Cam, of course, from Friends of the Earth. And we're going to talk to Cam. By the way, we've got um, Corey, who we've already spoken to, and uh, Emma in the studio with me this morning, Cam. And um, I thought I'd just open by um, saying, mentioning at the BHP annual AGM last week, um, Jack Nasser, the chair of the company, said they'd commit themselves to finding out what went wrong. But his main point he raised was our starting point is to maintain the strength of the balance sheet through the cycle, the balance sheet must always come first. Does that encourage you? No, it doesn't. It, it seems pretty much like business as usual, doesn't it? Profits uh, trump everything else. Yeah, and just your view, I mean, we'll start off with this one because I think we want to talk generally about how these companies treat the environment around the world, but Brazil's the latest, well, it's not the latest, there's one in Myanmar at the weekend, actually, in a jade mine, but, um, but Brazil's the big one at the moment. Um, your comment on it, generally? Uh, yes, it's been described by the Brazilian Environment Minister as the biggest environmental disaster in Brazil's history. You know, it, it just keeps on going on and getting worse. There was the, it's an iron ore mine. There was the tailings dam that collapsed uh, earlier this month. The sludge destroyed a village, displaced 600 people, but now it's gone downstream uh, through the river system to the ocean. So it, it's that classic knock-on effect you start to get in ecosystems where you do one thing and that impacts on the other. So this is this is going to continue to play for a very long time yet. At the start, BHP said there was, and the, the company Samarco said there's there's nothing dangerous in it. I would have thought that the fact that they wiped out a few villages might have been a bit dangerous in itself, but um, nothing dangerous. And yet they're now saying it might be decades before the repair can be can be completed. Yes, 
and uh, the river system actually flows into the Atlantic mm. and the main game at present, as I understand it, is they're trying to protect the estuaries there. So this sludge, you know, that's been moving down the river system, there's fears that it contains heavy metals and other toxins. Um, it's clearly problematic because at this point 150,000 people have lost access to their drinking water and they're reliant on drinking water from the company. That's how, how bad it is. So clearly there's something nasty in there. It is an iron ore plant. You know, there are real concerns about heavy metals, but once you start to get out into the estuary, that's, of course, all where the fisheries come from. So um, you're looking at this knock-on economic effect of mm. uh, collapse of, of the offshore fishery system. Um, the, the sludge will be, you know, washed out into the ocean and eventually dissipate. But, yeah, the real fear at this point is around the estuary areas, which is the basis, of course, of the fishing, which is the basis of the economic activity in the region. And there's already been impacts on tourism as well, uh, plus, of course, those direct impacts on, on the people who were killed, the people that are missing, and the more than 600 people who lost their homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the water supply was um, contaminated, I think, like 300 kilometres away? Like yes. the distance yeah. that this well, contamination it's, it's has gone is quite... Oh, was it 500? Yeah, they reached the Atlantic on Monday, but Cameron mm. can answer it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, what's really disturbing here is there was an assessment done in 2013 which showed problems with this dam. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, the take-home message of all of this is that self-regulation isn't working for these mining companies. You know, they've had a couple of years' notice and at the point of the assessment there was actually a recommendation that the lease, the approval on the mine not be uh, re-approved until those issues with the dam um, mm-hmm. had been resolved. Clearly they weren't and we've had the collapse of the tailings dam and now we have the, the head of the company saying, you know, the profit, the, the the books, the bottom line on the books is the most important thing. So it starts to sound a little bit like lip service to communities. Yeah. And in fact, some of the, that report, even though it was 2013, some of the aspects went back to 2008, in fact. Yes, um, that's my understanding. Yeah, and... Uh, and they, you know, they just did nothing about it. But now they're now they're sorry, of course. There, there was a um, a report this week, in fact, that uh, that the people, uh, a tribe um, or a Krenak tribe, uh, uh, which is along the river, um, they have in fact blocked the railway that uh, the company uses. Um, but also, the bloke uh, from the tribe said the murky red tin slurry clogging the, uh, the river water, their only source of potable potable water, had been undrinkable for a week. Like us now, the trees and the animals also don't have any water. The river dies. We all die. And the people along there are at, uh, at least protesting very strongly, but not much use at this point, I would guess. Yeah, the, you know, what, what the focus is, and the, and the company has committed, as I understand it, something like $270 million US dollars to the clean-up. Now, you know, everyone's throwing their resources um, at the clean-up, and I guess that is, you know, that's where we've just got to minimise the impacts um, of this massive sludge that's already gone out into the system, both the, the terrestrial, the, the riverine, and now the, the marine environment. So I guess the main game is, you know, minimising the direct impacts for now. But then, of course, down the track, we have to look at the survival, the ongoing uh, operation of this mine and under what conditions it's operating under. And, you know, there are two global instruments that are meant to gov- govern 
um, how these companies operate around the world. One's through the UN and one is through the OECD. They're voluntary uh, mechanisms and clearly they're not working. So it really brings us back to that conversation about why year after year are these companies allowed to get away with this. It's almost 30 years since the Octeti uh, tailings dam collapse um, which people will be very familiar with in our region. You know, this has been going on for decades. There's the story of Shell and other oil companies in Nigeria. You know, the same thing keeps happening. We are stuck in what feels like an endless loop. The companies commit to do the right thing. They're shocked after something bad happens. They help with the clean-up. But, you know, communities have to pick up the pieces and get on with their lives. So clearly something has to change here. And, and we have to hope a, a disaster of this scale will lead to a change in the way we govern uh, transnational mining co uh, corporations around the planet. It doesn't seem likely without a campaign. Yeah, although it's really interesting that for many years now, Friends of the Earth and other groups have been working uh, within the UN and building support for a binding treaty on transnational corporations. At this point, you know, it is just voluntary regulation, so to our mind they're pretty meaningless. Um, 800 organisations have supported the call, but it's getting interesting now because the governments of some countries like South Africa and India and Ecuador actually support the campaign now. The UN's taking it seriously and they've actually set up just this year a working group which is going to look at what what would a binding instrument um, that's meant to regulate transnational corporations uh, look like? Um, so that's actually a live conversation in the UN. It's taken a decade or more than a decade to get it there, um, slow and steady work. But I think we're just at that point where because large corporations are so powerful, we know, you know that half the largest economies on the planet are actually not nation states but corporations. They are the new you know, the Goliaths of, of this century. We need to find a way to bring them under control. And the way we're going to have to do that is local resistance matched with a global response. I have a question you might not be able to answer. Um, do you have any idea how much land and water... Um, we can contaminate before the earth is no longer habitable? Like what percentage? No, I don't. But the way you'd kind of figure that out is through looking at ecosystems. And there's a thing called the Living Planet Index where it goes through each key ecosystem like marine environments, riverine environments, desert and so on, and looks at, you know, the trends there. Um, it's easy to find online and it's actually quite terrifying how they do it each year and all the indicators keep trending down in terms of loss of species and loss of ecosystems. But no one's really been able to figure out that tipping point. You know, when, when is the point where we're off? the cliff um mm. you know we'll probably know it after we've gone off the cliff mm, doing a live experiment <laughs> yeah to answer a question that you don't <laughs> want to answer <laughs> Yeah, the, the, your point about them you know, saying they're sorry, putting up a bit of you know, compensation immediately, etc. There was a court case started last week in Brazil, in fact, by some one of the one of the human rights legal people, um, which whose main aim is, it said was to stop the the economic burden being falling back on the local government, um, hmm. on the Brazilian government and the local people, and that the company should meet the full costs. Uh, the implication being that it's likely that the public purse will again have to pick up a lot of the costs. Yes, which, which you know, it happens globally. I mean, here in Victoria, we had a, a copper, zinc and other mine up in the mountains in East Gippsland and, the, you know, there was a tailings down there that um, was breached. The company went broke and I think the Victorian taxpayers had to front something like $6 million to stabilise that tailings down. You know, that's a very very micro kind of sized mm. example of what's going on globally mm. these big companies are pulling literally billions of dollars of profit particularly out of the global south out of mm. africa 
out of Asia, you know, out of Latin America, and often they are able, in effect, to walk away. And we were talking earlier about that, um, the example of the Jade Mine, that disaster that's just happened up there. Mm. You know, there's what I'd call crony capitalism happening there. Yeah. Um, you know, the old, uh, it's a quasi-civilian government, but, you know, the military still kind of pull the strings to a large degree. There's few controls over how the companies operate. There's, you know, a, a mates network that runs a lot of the corporations. Um, and the transnational corporations are being encouraged into the, into the country. Um, so, you know, that type of system allows them to operate with impunity. Now, not all mining companies operate that way, but you have to argue on the basis of the evidence from around the world. The majority are happy to, you know, play at the lowest common denominator of what they're required to do. And we would say, no, you should be operating at a single level, regardless of whether you're, you know, running an oil facility in Altona or you're drilling for oil in the Niger Basin. And it's this problem of, you know, race to the bottom where in effect, these companies go to places where there might be crony capitalism or there might be a very weak state or there might be inadequate resourcing for, for state authorities to regulate their activities. And they do, in some instances, get away literally with murder, you know, as we've seen uh, recently in, in Brazil where, you know, people have died uh, and as yet the company has not been brought to account for that. And Octeti, of course, is a good example of walking away. Yes, it is. And, you know, unfortunately, there are others. And, uh, you know, they were in the 1990s, a lot of the mining companies really sought to rebadge themselves and to take their responsibilities seriously. And unfortunately, the key point there was they wanted voluntary governance mechanisms, you know, and it just, it, it's the classic putting the fox in charge of mm. the chicken. It's never going to work. It will work when things are good, but will, it will always fail and it will comprehensively fail when things go bad. And that's why we actually need a, a global compact, a global treaty to govern how these people operate. And, you know, the UN, of course, isn't perfect, but it's really the main game we have in terms of, um, you know, global coordination. Um, and if you did get a structure in place that, that provided legal liability to these companies so they can be sued in a very straightforward way, uh, you know, if and when they go wrong, if it gave the right to redress for people who have been impacted and if it gave international monitoring, that would be really important because when you get a disaster like this one in Myanmar with the, the jade mine, who's actually going to monitor how well the company cleans up? You know, so you need a, a global force that can be brought in, um, that is independent, that is well-resourced, um, and that can actually assess in a, in, in a fearless way what's been going on and where the companies are doing the right thing and where they're not. What about examples um, like the Fukushima disaster where the Japanese government didn't want to have international um, people having a yes. look? And that's where civil society comes in. So, you know, Japan has witnessed this incredible regrowth in its anti-nuclear movement. So where governments fail, it really is, unfortunately, up to communities to hold them to account. But where corporations fail, I think, you know, if the movements, you know, in some countries like Colombia, it's very dangerous to get organised against corporations. Uh, in some countries, the governments really aren't up to the task or they're, you know, aligned with the companies. So in those circumstances, we need that, that global response. So there, there's really no one size fits all to this. Resistance needs to be played out as it makes sense locally. But I think a key thing is um, we need to support what they call civil society organisations, the watchdogs in communities that will get organised and hold governments to account. So the Japanese government has comprehensively failed on the issue of Fukushima and they are being held to account by the anti-nuclear movements over there. Mm. The um, 
On that, by the way, yes, the the um, the before mentioned Jack Nasser, who's becoming one of my very favourite people, by the way, but. A few weeks ago, though, they were, he was being attacked by environmentalists over a coal mine in Borneo. Um, and he said the Indonesian government does want this resource developed and if we were to leave, our leases would be headed to another company and he couldn't trust them to look after the environment, he said. Hmm. Um, he said, but this is the bit I like, the area of interest has had accelerated development pressures over the last 20 years and it is not the pristine wilderness it was two decades ago. Things have changed. This is, of course, forest area where you know orangutans, etc., are under threat. Uh, and he, he also said um, that... Um, he genuinely believes that if we proceed, we can make a very positive social contribution and help raise the standard of mining in the area. So apparently once it's been destroyed by you, you can go on destroying it. Yes, and, uh, you know, that's, it's such a complex issue there. We toured last year someone from Friends of the Earth Indonesia who, who's based uh, on that island and who is actively campaigning against that coal mine. And the story he tells you is, is profoundly different to what the company tells you, of course. Um, it, there has been massive deforestation in the last couple of decades, but there's still some incredible biodiversity there. And there's a lot of locally owned small-scale agriculture which will be lost as a result of coal mining. So companies as as we know, exist to you know benefit their bottom line. So um, in terms of getting a, a good picture of what's going on, I generally rely on multiple sources rather than just the company. Um, and of course, you know the time for new coal is over. Whether it's so-called environmentally friendly or not, or whether it's at best practice, there should be no more coal mines created in the 21st century. That's just basic climate science. So he's ignoring science in saying you know they they can benefit local communities. He's pissing in the face of science. Yes, indeed, it is. Uh, even, you know, the International Energy Agency is saying we need to leave at least two-thirds of fossil fuels, uh, known fossil fuels under the ground if we're going to avoid dangerous climate change. Depending on who you talk to, it's up to 90%. So, you know, the time for new coal and this whole conversation around energy poverty, we're just digging up the coal to give, you know, poor people in India a chance to have the lights on. It's, it's, it, it's so false, it's ludicrous, because, of course, really low-income people in India will never be able to afford coal-fired power, which has been generated for manufacturing and the elites. It's not been manufactured for people who are living with energy poverty. Mm. I mean, that point of, the point that NASA was making was pretty similar to, the, to Shell, etc., saying, well, now that we've melted the Arctic ice, we can rub our hands and get what's under it. <laughs> Yes, well, that's a whole other very worrying conversation. You know, the, uh, the, there'll be a, a rush for resources as uh, the, uh, the permafrost melts in, in the north where we're looking at some intensification of the resource struggles right across the north of the planet in Alaska and in, in Russia uh, and across through to Siberia and, of course, uh, in the north of Canada. So that's, that's, an, that's you know, another really worrying development. Mm. And you did mention in passing, but maybe we should at least mention it again, the, the Niger Delta, the absolute pollution there, the absolute poverty, and yet Shell and co have walked away with a fortune. Yes, there's been a number of court cases and Friends of the Earth has been running one uh, in the Netherlands that's been going on, I think, since 2008. Uh, it's had an outcome, but it's under appeal at present. You know, this kind of shows how long it takes to bring these companies to account. We ran the same court case in the Nigerian court system and won, uh, but unfortunately we were not able to get uh, the, the compensation um, out of the company. That's why we went global and, and ran a, a second set of court cases. But... 
I was there in 2004 uh, with the Friends of the Earth group in Nigeria looking at the pollution in the Niger Delta from, you know, decades worth of oil and gas production. And people keep telling me there, you know, all these years later, there still has not been adequate clean-up of any of the sites that they are working on over there. So uh, in spite of what companies say, and there's been a large number of, of oil um, and gas operators there, not just Shell, um, there has been no adequate clean-up of old contamination sites to the, to the approval of the local Friends of the Earth group. Mm. Well, thanks for coming on the just, show. Before no, we go, we've got just, another one. Well, just one last thing. Before you go, Cameron, I guess we've got to ask you, are you feeling optimistic, pessimistic, or wait and see about Paris the next week? Uh, I think we have to be optimistic. You know, the, the stakes are just too high here. You know, there's unparalleled uh, focus on what's going on. Uh, you know, we've failed comprehensively before, or our leaders have failed comprehensively before, but I think everyone knows the stakes are very high here because if we don't agree on a new structure, we will have no global agreement after the Kyoto Protocol runs out. So, you know, we can't afford to fail. Right. On that cheery note, thanks for um, being on City Limits. <laughs> that was Cam Wilker from Friends of the Earth. Thanks, and Cam. The Thank time you. is 9.29, and we're going to go to a track now. This is um, Against Me with True Trans Soul Rebel. <laughs> that was Against Me with True Trans Soul Rebel. Um, time's 9.33. You're listening to City Limits, eight. 55am on 3cr.org.au and now it's it's Emma time. Emma Warren time. Hello, yeah. thank you for having me on. That's right. <laughs> Emma, tell us a bit about yourself to kick off. I don't know, because we're going to go on about planning and sort of general things around cities, I thought I'd, I'd cheer you both up by making you realise that there is empathy in this world. Um, <laughs> You'd be pleased to know that Scott Morrison, the uh, former Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, who's now Treasurer, of course, um, says his family mortgage helps him understand the hard work of paying off a home loan. <laughs> so doesn't that make you feel good? Hmm, that just makes me feel great. He empathises with everybody out there. <laughs> <laughs> Especially those uh, of my generation who'll never get a home loan. Ever. ever. I've given up. Even trying or thinking that I'll ever own a home. Yeah. It's just, it's impossible. Yeah. But um, with Scott Scott. Morrison in the helm, I'm sure he can can, uh, set us up in a nice prison on an island. (laughs) He's got lots of places he can send you. Yeah. Or a car park. Mm. I think a a study was done about housing affordability by the Tenancy Union, I think. And they were like, all you can afford in terms of like the cost of housing is two car park spots in the city and a storage shed. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, a car park spot in Melbourne now goes for forty thousand yeah. dollars. Wow, you'd be struggling to make the car park, I reckon. Forty thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. We had a protest. Don't even many, get the car with that. Many many years ago, when Lindsay Thompson was Premier of Victoria and Jeff Kennett was a young housing minister. We had a protest outside uh, Lindsay Thompson's house one Sunday with lots of people mm. in which someone played Thompson and I played Jeff Kennett in a Scotch college cap, which was the only way I looked anything like Jeff Kennett. And, uh, and we, in fact, allocated to the homeless the, the gutter and the lawn and the front lawn, etc. And we allocated them all little bits around the neighbourhood. Got plenty of totally coverage. That's what it was all about. But yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, there you are. Anyway, Emma, you, you, tell us. Yeah, uh, so I... As a young 18-year-old, um, studied landscape architecture mm-hmm. originally, 
Um, I moved from the country. Um, Which part of the country? Castlemaine, uh-huh. Central Victoria. Uh-huh. Go yeah, on, go good on. Good place to grow up. Um, and I did my double degree, um, and my first job was in um, a growth area, mm-hmm. so um, in the north of Melbourne, um, and I was really, really into planning when I started it, and by the end of it, I hated planning, um, and I, there were all these issues and problems. And Tell us about those. Um, I'm just I a think- bit worried. Emma's come on the show to talk about planning a fair <laughs> bit, and she now tells us she hates it. <laughs> Love, I think that's perfect. Love hate. Love hate. Love hate. Love hate. She she yeah. sees how good it could be. Yeah. And it's disappointed. Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks. I'm that's very coming. disappointed in you planning. <laughs> that's what Emma says. Yeah. Oh good. Yeah. Um I guess the first thing that really shocked me was um there was this amazing cheese farm out there that had been there for like five generations and yeah. like it was like wonderful and it was all just going to go um, and, like, it was going to be covered by residential development. Why? Um, well, there was no way that they could – land becomes very valuable when it's on the fringe uh-huh. and when it, become, when it gets rezoned, it becomes very, very valuable. So um, I, I think they couldn't afford to stay there because suddenly it was, it was more valuable for residential development than remaining as a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the council obviously couldn't afford to buy out that piece of land. So, yeah, it just had to go. Um, so, and being replaced by big supermarkets and, like, none of that kind of existing, like, kind of agricultural yeah. uses were being looked at. Um, that was something that I became really, really interested in. Um, so, yeah, afterwards I um, I studied permaculture mm-hmm. Um and I guess I met people who became who are really really interested in the idea of kind of permaculture systems and thinking around permaculture mm-hmm. being incorporated more into planning. Mm. Um, so we can, you know, start looking at food and planning and our, our like yeah, mm. incorporating that into the planning system. So I became more and more interested in that. Um, recently, I've joined the. Um, Gnomes Farming Collective, which is a small group of people that um, are farming in different areas around Melbourne. Mm. Being gnomes, it would be a small group, of course. Yeah. Um, it's smallish, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so I've started doing more. that. Um, and yeah, and I've just become very kind of interested in. Um, the way that we can do planning differently. Um, and I just, I don't buy the argument that, like, we do have a housing crisis, but building on the, you know, keeping build, keeping to build it, like, on the fringes is, like, not the way to do it. Mm. Um, and, I, yeah, I just think, yeah, we need to do things differently. Mm. One mm. of the issues I um, told Kate Shaw we wanted to raise, in fact, was that very issue that you've got, in fact, you've got two things happening at once. You've got developers saying we need to um, to develop the middle and inner suburbs and mm. go up higher and higher mm. and more and more apartments at the same time as they're screaming for more land to be made available on the fringes. Mm. Uh, so they want it both ways, really. Yeah. But um, but 
developing the fringes, as you say, it not only takes away that agriculture you talked about, but also it impinges now on what's the last remaining ecology of a lot of lot of the original ecology yeah. around the East, particularly in the northwest. Yeah, there's lots um, of native grasslands yes, those, and a lot of yes, and the, the, biodiversity. The famous growling yeah. grass yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, so it, it has mm. that, that awful impact that it's destroying the environment. Mm. And so is there a point where cities have to sit back and say, can we go any further? Can we get any well, bigger? We, I don't think we can. I think mm. Melbourne's got one of the widest... Um, geographical distances anywhere in the world, mm. the, the width of our city, mm-hmm. the geographical width. So it's ridiculous. And the urban growth boundary keeps moving, you know, like mm. they, they're like, this is the final urban growth <laughs> boundary. <laughs> and then there's another one. <laughs> and then can you compare it to other cities that may be geographically smaller but have more people and better services? Well, definitely, yeah. Um, Such as London, perhaps? Um, London, well, I guess, yeah, London's got higher density development. I think in Australia, we just um, do not like density, Mm. um, particularly in... We're all misanthropes. Particularly (laughs) in the suburbs. Um, I had this other um, planning job where I was um, reading all all these submissions from the community, Mm -hmm. um, and a part of it was about... um, yeah, like increasing densities. And just some people are just like, oh, apartments are going to bring in like all these people that we don't want in our neighbourhood. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of fear around our built environment changing and, and what, you know, and it it relates to people's housing and mm. um, like they don't want the the cost of their housing to go down by their neighbourhood changing. Mm. Basically... Um, they just want to keep the poor out. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and maybe that's these what, that, people who are going to be in apartments are going to be the poor. Yeah, right? and maybe that's what apartments or higher density represents to yeah. people that care about their neighbourhood. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there, in fact, there was a good example up in Coburg about three years ago. We've talked about it a few mm. times where mm. there were two, in the same neighbourhood there were two pretty much identical developments, mm. but one was going to be for low income people and one was going to be a general developers mm. sellout. Mm. And the the one for low income people got about sixty or seventy objections. The other one got about two objections, mm. Mm. Um, all because of the sort of people who were going to yeah. live there, as they saw it. As they saw it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's concerning. Yeah. Uh, so where would you like to go with um, urban planning, permaculture, architecture? Um, well, I'm definitely I, – I would like to get Mark on the show, who mm-hmm. is this guy that he's been um, – he's got a Facebook page and he does a lot of talks and workshops mm-hmm. um, about, um, yeah, permaculture and urban planning and, like, I really like a lot of his ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he's saying makes heaps of sense. Um, so, yeah, next year I'm thinking of just doing a year of um, urban horticulture um, and, yeah, keep keep kind of plugging away more at landscape architecture and um, making planning a little bit more ecological, mm. um, ecologically driven. Um, yeah, that's what I'm kind of interested in. And you're also helping your mum build a house? I am. Yeah. Can you tell us, like, what's that been like from a planning sort of perspective? Okay. Um, so it, I think it's probably an issue that lots of older people are facing. Um, me and my brother and I have moved out, so she mm. has this big house and she now needs to downsize. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, I think that's an issue that a lot of older people face. And when housing is so expensive, there's not, not a lot of options for people. So um, my mum is building a house just down the back. So it's going to be small, like just for her with a loft. Um, but we're trying to <clears throat> incorporate like permaculture principles into the design. Um, and it's we'll have solar panels and water tank. And yeah, yeah. And it's on the same block? On the same block. So what will happen to the house at the front? Um, that will stay there, but it will be rented out to mm. someone else. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. It does. And I think a lot of people are doing the dual occupancy um, thing mm-hmm. um, because it makes sense. Like, if people can't afford to a new house, they may want to, like, subdivide their block um, and have a house for their kids. Mm. I think it's an option that a lot of people are doing these days. And, and mm. what was the uh, what was it like going through the council to get permissions for your mum's new house? We're about to do it. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you can keep us informed. That's another, yeah. that's another program. <laughs> yeah, another yeah. 10 weeks of program. We're supposed to do it before Christmas. So, yeah. I'm going to say, if you have any problems with site ratio and that sort of thing, because they might say, well, you you can't build on that much of the land or whatever. Yeah, well, I did actually have, um, my previous job was um, in the city of Monash, mm-hmm. and they're introducing these new planning provisions to um, increase um, setbacks, so front setbacks and rear setbacks. Okay. Um, which is really, really fantastic because it's to prevent, like, massive McMansions being built that take up the entire block and um, they're redu- like reducing the permeable, um, le- like permeable space on the site. Can you explain that? So permeable <laughs> means that it's it's not built on, so water can absorb okay. into the ground. Yep. Um, so it's really great. And there was a provision for um, like three canopy trees, um, but. Yeah, it was interesting to read the feedback of what the community, how everyone responded to it, because a lot of people were like, oh, this means that we're not going to be able to do a dual occupancy because we'll have yeah. less space to build on. Yeah. Um, and it's going to mean that we, we have to build up, mm. which is going to be bad for you know older people or people with disabilities. Um, so, yeah, that was really interesting. But I think at the same time, increasing... Um, permeable space is really important. Mm. And increasing density, I mean, it's probably important as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 So it's just have to figure out a way to do it that caters to the needs of all of the community. Yeah. And we're not also, we may have units, but we may be like concreting absolutely everything. And I think Mm. that is also a bit of an issue. Like we, we want density, but like how do we do it? Yeah, it's it's, it's an important discussion because I yeah. think there are real there are real problems, but I, I support higher density oh, in these definitely. areas. But yeah. there are problems when, for instance, if someone's got a pocket size or a handkerchief size or something backyard, and someone builds so they lose a view they've always had mm. or the view of a tree or sky, which to them is critically important. Mm. Um, I think that's a real problem. How do you get around that? I mean, yeah. they, they're the, as a councillor, I faced these for a long time and I mm. fought for people and I kept losing, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> but because, but, um, you know, if it falls within the planning guidelines of mm. the local area and all that sort of stuff, then it, it gets passed regardless of the impact it has on its neighbours. Mm. But then you also support the idea of higher density. So it, I think it's a real conflict. It is. And I, I, I have no simple answer <laughs> no, to it, by the way. No, um, no. Okay, mm. yeah. we're going to talk about 
Um, the fact that every new government comes in has a new planning oh, scheme. Yeah. 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 How do you feel about that? Well, it, it's not a new planning scheme because mm-hmm. the planning scheme is the same, but it's like a new plan, like strategic plan. Yeah, long-term plan yeah, for so Melbourne. There's been, I actually read about this last night. There's been Melbourne 2030, Melbourne at 5 million, Plan Melbourne... And now they've got Plan Melbourne Refresh. Mm. And there were ones before that, other governments before that also had them. They all yeah. had them. You know, hey, well, this is one, one yeah. has been coming yeah. in every four years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And these are meant to be long-term plans, but then they keep changing. Yeah, they keep bringing in a new one. Yeah, they're long-term every... four years. Yeah, long-term four years. Yeah. But the most recent one um, has brought in this thing that I was reading about last night called the missing middle. Mm-hmm. So we always focus on, like, high density in the centre or mm-hmm. um, new housing on the fringe, but we never really talk about what's going on in the middle. So kind of, I don't know, the Preston-y, Coburg-y kind mm. of suburbs. The Camberwells, the Kews, yeah, the Hawthorns. Yeah, the and I read Mulvins. this article last night and they were saying that that housing stock is getting really old now mm. um, and we need to start thinking about new dwellings that are going to be built on it. Um, so, yeah, they've called it, they call it Greyfield Development. Mm-hmm. And this article is just about... Um, we need to be increasing densities but doing kind of they're calling it semi detached dwellings. Okay, what's that? So it's it's not like units, but it'll be two dwellings that are kind of side by side. Okay. And they share um, a wall? They they share a wall. So yeah, then they're, they're not um de- they're not detached. They're not a detached single dwelling, they're just um two joined together. So it sounds like a pretty And and what are the benefits of that? Space? Um, well, space, I think it means that backyards can be retained. Mm-hmm. Um, people do love their backyards. <laughs> and if you're into permaculture, you definitely want to have a backyard. Mm. Um, and I think I, I think it meant that they could also just have like a street frontage as well. So it's just two houses kind of side by side. So, yeah, that I read about that last night. So it's a good thing that it's been included mm. in the latest mm. one. We've also got one in Moreland at the moment. There's mm. an interesting isurism. You might be aware there's that that block of apartments right next to Anstey Station on the bike path mm. there, which is sort of state-of-the-art environmental, and it's got mm. no car parking, oh, etc. Yep, yep. If you've got a car, it's, I mean, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, to, to obviously to reduce the uh, reliance on motor cars by people. Mm. Uh, but it's also, you know, they're located right next to public transport. It's mm. next to a railway mm. station that's got the tram line at the, you know, about 100 yards away. Um, now, Moreland Council's pushing those sorts of developments. But recently it approved one right next again to bus, train, tram yep. Yep. with yep. no car parking, but yep. VCAT has overruled it. Oh, I heard about um, this. And, yeah. um, and I think the government, they're going to take it to the government and try and have a change. But it's an interesting situation where VCAT is saying, no, we insist there must be a car park, you know, whatever it is, 1.5 or something for every unit in the joint, mm. when the council's trying to cut back on the use of motor cars. Um, and getting over, overturned. Yeah, who who was the person that? Um, I don't know. Well, the developer one. One assumes the developer took it to. Although the developer one assumes the developer would have supported it because they yeah. put it up without them. So I don't know how it happened. Someone's taken it to VCAT. And, I think it was uh, another developer who thought that he wouldn't be affected by that decision. Oh, really, and, I, I'm not sure how it happened, and, but I know yeah. I know VCAT overturned it, and yeah. it's a big issue locally it's, at the yeah. moment. Um, mm. It's just a. It's a it seems to be quite amazing that when council's trying to do something trying to do about, you know, that sort the of best thing. that it can, yeah, you know, it's trying yeah. to do the right thing. Yeah. But I reckon instead of taking away car parking spots, you know, they've got to invest in public transport mm. and then that will naturally, hopefully. But I think this development was right next yeah. to a, a train yeah. station I mean, and yeah. like it was 
you know, in the perfect uh, place. They're, on, they're only approving them where they're right next to the public transport yeah. system. So the yeah. one on the bike path's right next to Anstey Station. It's mm. got the Sydney Road tram. Mm. And the other, this one currently apparently also had a bus service right next. So, so you know, they, they're not approving them away from public transport. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm. it's well, even, you might argue the public transport system itself needs to be improved. Yeah, that's yeah, another, yeah. Another question, but yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, that's that's the that's the idea. Yeah, yeah I mean, what say you're heading in a direction that the bus doesn't go? Which, well, you know, they tend to go in between the city and back. Yeah, but mm. still you've got a tram and a train, so it's pretty right. I mean, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Yeah. All right, all right. I've been outvoted by this yeah, one. Yeah, you have. You just got ruled out of that one. <laughs> yeah, overall. <laughs> but we still support you on improving public transport. You've got oh, to pursue you. that one. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. Have a crack at that. Mm. So um, if you wanted to plan for the future of Melbourne, what what sort of things would you put in your plan? Hmm. Um, well, it's a big question. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I think I would, the first thing I would do, I'd probably look into different housing design, like uh-huh. um, kind of co-housing I'm pretty interested in. As in share housing? No, it's different. Okay, what is it? Um, I, I'm not an expert on this. We should probably have someone in uh-huh. who knows about co-housing. Oh, but you'll become an expert and tell us anyway at some <laughs> stage, so don't worry. You, yeah, you'll be right. <clears throat> um, so I think it's... Uh, when a group of people come together and put all their money together, invest all their money together. Um, and I guess it's housing that has some shared communal facilities. Mm-hmm. So um, I, there's one in Heidelberg, I think. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and I've been planning to go and visit it. Mm. Um, but it just means that you have some private space, but you kind of have more shared spaces as well. So um, is that the same as an intentional community or is it different? Um, I think it's different. Intentional okay. community and co-housing, yeah, okay. it's different. Um, but I think it just, yeah, you've got joint financial responsibility and, um, yeah, I, I need to go visit more to mm-hmm. kind of find out more about it. But um, I would definitely be interested in that. Mm-hmm. I think the time is over for just these single dwellings. Um, they're good for some people, mm-hmm. but I think we need to expand the debate from just like single dwellings or apartments or units. Like mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's other ways that we could design our housing. Yeah, there's, and there's a few ideas floating around of that sort. There's one Andrea yeah. Sharon with her research at Swinburne came up with a few weeks ago yeah. about, about people con- you know, getting together to build an apartment yeah, block. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that that seems to me. I, I'm a time of lunch with Andrea shortly. I'll work it out. But she uh, seems to me to be a touch impractical because how do you get them together? I'm not sure of that. Plus, yeah. it doesn't resolve the overall problem of homelessness and people who can't even afford that. I know. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of you know, but there are all sorts of ideas being floated around. Yeah. Which have all got. But I'm value. quite interested yeah. in co-housing, and yeah, I'd like to know more about that. Um, what do you think of a housing idea like the the famous Earthship? Oh, yeah, earthships. Mm. Um, so we should explain what they are for the listeners. They're made out of uh, recycled materials. Yep. And uh, they are designed so that they have passive heating and cooling and a greenhouse at the front. And that's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know heaps about them, but I would say that um, they use a lot of permaculture principles. Mm-hmm. So they probably yeah, grow a lot of food. Um, yes. They, they're quite ex- extreme. Mm-hmm. I think, like, they seem to come with this idea that <laughs> the world is going to end and we <laughs> need to <laughs> protect ourselves in an earthship. Uh-huh. Um, 
which I think is, is a little bit extreme. But the general idea of them, I think, is really, really fantastic. Um, and, yeah, I, but I think it, the issue is councils approving these kind of developments. Like, it would be so, so difficult. I actually know someone who's trying to build an earthship mm-hmm. um, up in Mer- King Lake, Marysville. I think his house was burnt by the fires and he wants to um, build this earthship. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's had really huge difficulties mm. getting it approved. Mm-hmm. By so council. you have the green thing at the front and the launching pad at the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when all the else fails, away you go. <laughs> the rocket, the helicopter pad. Yeah, that's it. Um, one of the interesting things about the Earthship design is that they uh, it uses recycled tyres. Tyres, yeah. yeah. You know, yep. it's you know, so it's like you've got a building material that is recycled, but also, you know, the council might be freaked out that it's not uh, made in a very you know, that the tyres could be worn out or whatever. Yeah. Or that they weren't made with the intention of being building materials. And I think there's also a lot of stringent um, planning rules now after the um, bushfires. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum's house is in a is near a lot of bushland, mm-hmm. so we're under the um, the bushfire... Oh, what's it called? Anyway, the BMO, Bushfire Management Overlay. So, yeah, you have to meet all these um, planning regulations, so... Maybe that's another reason why councillors are a bit funny about it. But mm. tyres seem like they would be stand up in a fire. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, if they were full of dirt anyway. Yeah. I mean, rubber band. Yeah. But, yeah, if they were full of dirt and covered, then I think, you know, it would be great. Yeah. But that is something that you have to consider when you choose your materials. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, time's 9.57. Yes, and Emma's now been welcome to the program. And uh, next Thank week you. she'll be pleased to know that... That it's transport. Emma, tell people it's transport next week with John McPherson. Okay, next week we're talking about transport with John McPherson. Mm. And can you thank Kev for all his uh, running the show? Nothing today. (laughs) Thank thank Corey for pressing buttons. Thank you. Thanks, Corey. (laughs) And for my great taste in music. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't thank her for that. (laughs) All right. City Limits, 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au, time is 9.57, and this is the Polyphonic Spree with All Things. See you next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au